Hello and welcome to Let Him Roar Again. I'm Amy Perry. Joining me today I have Julia Billington. A NIDA graduate, Julia works as a director, actor and performance and movement coach. She's a regular director of the Bell Shakespeare Players. Julia has extensive training in physical theatre, having studied and performed with New York-based City Company. She also has numerous television and theatre credits and will be performing in Bell Shakespeare's 2022 production of Comedy of Errors. Welcome, Julia. Thank you, Amy. Such a pleasure to be here. Let's kick off with some questions about Shakespeare in terms of being a teaching artist. So uh, as usual, we'll have two kind of parts to this interview that we have together. Uh, the first one, we'll be talking about teaching artists and Shakespeare, and then we'll move on to talk a little bit about physical theatre and Shakespeare, and particularly what that means for Australians. So we're going to start with teaching artists and Shakespeare. You're working a lot with Shakespeare as an actor, a director, and a teaching artist. Why Shakespeare for you as a professional artist? It's a great question, um, and it kind of needs to be answered in three different parts um, because the reason is different for all three, um, so I hope that's okay. Yeah. As an actor, which is my first and foremost profession um, and, and one of my deepest, deepest loves, um, Shakespeare just offers the most incredible landscape for the actor to really sink their teeth into some incredible language, incredible imagery, and incredible story or character or relationship driven content. Um, one of the reasons why I think Shakespeare was an absolute genius is that he knew what his strengths were and he knew, uh, uh, maybe I won't dare to say weaknesses for the bard, um, <laughs> but he knew, uh, he knew where he didn't need to do extra work. So he went out there and he often stole his stories from places that were already great stories. Mm. So a lot of the reason why we love Shakespeare is simply because he was a really great uh, dramaturg of finding good juicy stories that already existed. Um, Romeo and Juliet, my favourite play, is um, a classic example of that. Here's an amazing poem um, and I'm going to take it, I'm going to rewrite it with some amazing imagery, but I'm going to make it better because I'm Shakespeare and I'm going to condense the time frame to heighten the drama and I am going to poke the, um, the cultural moral edge of the times and I'm going to flip the meaning from kids, you have to listen to your parents otherwise you'll end up dead to hey, parents, listen to your kids, otherwise you'll strangle the life out of them, mm -hmm. um, which is a beautiful kind of moral juxtaposition that um, is my belief of what he was doing with Romeo and Juliet. So as an actor, when you pick up a Shakespeare play, you get a great story, often, most of them. Um, you get a great story. You get wonderful, rhythmic, rich text that um, we'll talk a bit more about why I love diving into this, but, but rhythm is a huge thing in my world, um, movement-wise, breath-wise, musicality-wise, and the rhythm of Shakespeare just comes through so strongly. And so I love the rhythm of it. Um, and then he just sets up such extraordinary um, imagery with what he says. Um, he doesn't just insult a character. He'll do it in such a smart, intelligent, 
snipey way um, or he won't just have characters fall in love and say I love you he'll give them this incredible um, entire scene where they go through the entire gamut of the human experience of what it is to fall in love um, so you get you, you get the rigid structure of text you get a gorgeous you know relationship or, or content of character and a great story to work with so as an actor um, it's really juicy as a director, um, pretty similar, uh, but the world of Shakespeare, um, you really can bend it to whatever your world uh, choices are. Mm. Um, maybe you're the kind of director that wants to take the text and set it in a really definitive era. Yeah, you might be like, I just love the 50s. Everything I do is going to be set in the 50s, yeah. Shakespeare allows you to do that and you get a great new spin on it. Um, it, it it gives you a lot of freedom despite the fact that it's one of the classics. So as a director, that's one of the reasons why I kind of, I love to play around with it. Um, plus it's great material for your actors to work with. So a, a lot of that is kind of, a lot of the job is done there. More separately is as a teaching artist, why, why work with Shakespeare? And this answer is quite different. Um, I love working with Shakespeare as a teaching artist because I often teach uh, what I call young adults, people from the age of 12 up to 25. Mm -hmm. um, and when you get to work with young adults in Shakespeare, more often than not, you come across these people that have a preconceived idea of something that is stuffy, dull. They've either had a previous experience with it that hasn't gone well, i.e., yeah. let's read it in English class. We'll start with you, John, then you're next, Lucy, and no one knows what the hell is going on. Yeah. Um, so you get to repair some damage. Um, if they haven't got a preconceived of Shakespeare, when you're working with young adults, it's often the first time then that they get to work with it and you get to give them a great first experience. And you have this perfect opportunity to peel off the dust and say, I know it might sound or your encounters so far might have made it this thing that's sitting on the top shelf of the library gathering dust, but actually it's the edgiest rock star material of his day. You just don't know that yet. Um, and that revelation that I get to see in the young humans I have the, the joy of interacting with is, is why I love teaching with Shakespeare. Yeah, I sometimes refer to him as the Chris Hemsworth. Totally. Yeah, there's, if you can think of him as being young and attractive and exciting, um, it, it helps, doesn't it? I, th I think we need to really enjoy being irreverent with Shakespeare. I don't know mm. where, I haven't done the cultural studies at university to find out where and when, but something went wrong with Shakespeare. Um, he, he was the James Cameron of his time, mm. you know. He's, he's making blockbusters. Um, if he didn't make a blockbuster that attracted hundreds and thousands of people to come and see his plays over however long they were open for, he didn't eat. Yeah, so the blood and the guts were the CGI's of the day and the content and the I'm going to chop off the hands and cut out the tongue of one of my characters was like, let's let's draw the crowd, right? Like that's yeah. the, the, the gory Game of Thrones stuff, you know. Um, he's not, he's definitely not um, above uh, really drawing in the crowds with, you know, lowest kind of common denominator in a way, you know. Yeah. As a performing artist, what do you think you bring to a school that you're invited into? You've talked a little bit about brushing off the dust um, and injecting some kind of excitement. What do you think for schools having an external practitioner adds to the exploration of Shakespeare in the classroom? 
I have a little joke with the excellent Hugh McKinnon, who um, is a full-time teaching resident at Bell Shakespeare, um, that when we get to come in and do just a blip, a two-hour workshop, just the tiniest of things and walk away from a school, um, we joke that we get to, we call it rock star teaching. We come in, we're a totally different energy to the regular teachers. We almost shock them and wow them in the first, you know, kind of hour because everything is physical. We're not sitting at desks. Oh, my goodness, we might even take our shoes off. Um, and, and we get to just wow them with this kind of new rock star energy. So if nothing else, that freshness um, often just makes students listen again. Um, this, is, this is not to say that teachers who teach students regularly cannot be rock stars. I think you all are. You do an incredible job, teachers. <laughs> um, but uh, just simply the fact that um, a student hears a different voice is often going to help and, and make them listen to us. Um, we, we, can, we can come in with a bunch of industry um, uh, toolkits that not every drama teacher has access to. I, I know a lot of drama teachers from having done this work for a while. Um, and there is a distinct lack of um, resources available from inner city drama teachers, mm -hmm. which really do have a lot at their disposal um, to some teachers way out in tinier towns, in regional towns, in various areas of Australia. Um, and the discrepancy there, when we come in as professional artists, there's so much that we kind of give and then keep giving and leave and say, hey, here's a thing you can continue working with and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the other thing that I think is less thought about that we offer as a fresh person walking into the school um, is we don't have a preconceived idea of who these students are. And sometimes when you walk in and if you think that Johnny's always the naughty one, then you kind of treat Johnny as always the naughty one. Mm -hmm. But as a guest artist, we come in, we've got no idea who these students are, who the quote unquote good students are. Everyone is fresh. And sometimes it's actually the students that are more unruly or are more raucous that actually discover that through kinesthetic learning, suddenly they're, they're the hero of the room that we needed for that day. Um, and we can completely get them on side or not having a preconceived relationship means we really can give everyone um, a fresh go. And again, often that is what a lot of students need. Hmm. It's that join between having fresh eyes and fresh voice, but also that industry understanding and experience that you bring you mentioned there about regional schools versus mm. city schools and it's a debate I think that we often have particularly about resourcing what do you think we can do to resource regional schools better regional teachers better oh it's a it's a huge topic um, the main thing that I think of is access mm. how can we get teachers and students alike to see theatre um, and, you know, there are communities out there, I've done some work in your Oval, which is incredible, and they set up networks with other fellow smaller or central schools. They collect a whole bunch together in a bus, somehow that's funded, and then they bus off to Orange, which is the major metropolitan that's sort of within driving distance, and everyone comes together for this one massive night to see a production. Um, now that's amazing and that's excellent, but you can clearly hear the amount of energy that has to go into allowing that access. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, students in schools in a metropolitan city, um, sometimes they'll go to see a show 
twice a term, um, you know, is on the syllabus. And, mm -hmm. and just simply seeing the professional world of, of theatre um, is just, it's such a huge advantage. So I don't know how we solve it. Um, you know, one of these positives of the whole COVID issue is that we're discovering how to broadcast and live stream um, and do it in a way that doesn't feel tokenistic, doesn't feel like we're sacrificing any of the quality. Um, and, and hopefully more and more and more we can begin to broadcast things for accessibility reasons. Um, I don't really have any more ideas than that. Um, I wish I did. I'll think about them. <laughs> Maybe next podcast. You'd be um, solving think, yeah. a huge issue, yeah. Accessibility is a, is a really big, we're, in a, we're a big country. We've got mm. a lot of broad open spaces and that, um, yeah, that does pose a challenge. Mm. I think particularly the drama teacher community, or well, that's the community that I know the best, is so good at supporting one another. And you're right, banding together and finding ways to work together to create these opportunities for the students. Yeah, it's not through a lack of working hard to make it happen. It's just access geographically, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah, there, oh, there's no question about it. A lot of the drama teachers I've worked with recently work there can I say the word butts? Surely I can. Sure. Work their butts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the word I thought you were going to say then. So that butts is fine. <laughs> I went PG. <laughs> well done. Um, you came through as a performer in Bell's The Players. Uh, you now direct The Players. That's, mm -hmm. you know, a long-standing association there with the players. Tell me about the shows that the players perform in schools around the country. What do you think it is that resonates most with students in that kind of forum? Um, the players and before it, the program called Actors at Work, yeah. has been around for, I want to say, over 25 years now. It's a long time, a long time that Bell has been running it. And since it transformed into the players, we've had the beautiful benefit of Joe Erskine, um, mm -hmm. who has started to curate and write these scripts. So, yes, of course, we're taking Shakespeare shows into schools, um, but the way that we're doing that has really, really, really become um, super sophisticated because of Joe Erskine. Um, mm. And she now writes these really remarkable scripts that tie together. Um, sometimes it's one play focused on Macbeth, for example, or focused on Romeo and Juliet or A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and sometimes it's multiple plays focusing around a certain theme. Um, either way, the shows that are created um, for the educational department of Bell Shakespeare um, have had so much work put into them. Um, I think that's, what's the word that you were using? That's why they resonate mm -hmm. um, because Joe's incredible at what she does. So the plays um, often have uh, characters that are, we, we kind of call them the, the supporting characters and they're colloquial everyday students or people just like you and me. Mm. And they rock up for whatever reason. So for example, one of the productions last year, we called it Macbeth, the rehearsal. And so we have these three actors that, you know, rock up to the school and it's an incredibly excellent postmodern, fourth wall breaking, casual beginning. Hey everyone, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. We're meant to be three actors coming on, but um, we, we can't find our third actor. Have you seen him? Yeah, we're, we're meant to be rehearsing Macbeth. Well, I was here earlier and so on and so forth. So 
immediately we get them on side with these framing characters. And then, of course, the third actor walks in, hungover, coffee cup, sunnies in hand, and sorry I'm late, everyone, and they are the Chris Hemsworth and they are too <laughs> cool for school and they don't know their lines. And So um, Joe's incredibly clever in finding an access point, a, a modern-day um, contemporary access point for young humans to want to care about these stories. We don't just come in um, and say, you have to listen to us, we know what we're doing, be quiet um, and begin. It's just, it would never work like that. So one of the reasons the the players resonate so well is that it's accessible. Um, The the place that I performed in 2012 um, was a variation on Macbeth and a variation on A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is great. We often come in and we do it. We try to do it at least early on in the students' exposure. If they're studying it for a term, we try and get in early, you know, depending on what area that we're performing in. So that the first experience they have is of a lived, breathed, acted out um, show, which is so important. Um, so we get framing characters that make it resonate and then we we lull them into the Shakespeare. Um, and, and we do this especially with the primary school shows, which we've begun to do as well, where a lot of it, 95% of it, is colloquial language because it has to be. But we lull them into these Shakespeare words, these Shakespeare phrases, and we do the same thing with our senior school students so that by the end they don't realise that they've dropped into understanding Shakespeare. Um, Throughout the way, someone's asking a question, um, why did you say that? That's a dumb word. That means, what does that mean? We're using everyday language. We're not not making Shakespeare this reverent thing that we have to kind of bow down to. We're pulling it apart. We're asking questions of it. Um, And especially asking questions of why why should we like this character? They're doing X, Y, Z. we set up um, the, the topics that often want to be debated around it without giving them an answer, which is what Shakespeare was really doing back in his own time anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I think with those two things combined, we, we set the play's um, parameters well. We, we like to think we can kind of win students along uh, uh, right from the get-go. Um, the play that I'm directing this year begins with the discussion, um, Shakespeare, boring, he's that old white dead guy from 400 years ago. Like we actually have those lines in our play. So there's there's absolutely no way that the, the students sit there and they're kind of like, oh, all right, we've got nothing left to say after that. <laughs> Acknowledged. Exactly. From there, then we, we, we would like to think, might not happen every show, but from there we like to think that we can, we can pull them in, get them on side. Yeah. Do you think that's particularly Australian, the idea of needing to be irreverent with Shakespeare? I, I don't know. We seem to take the mickey quite a lot out of everything and that seems to me to be part of the Australian experience. Do you think that that's why we do it in schools? Possibly. I mean, uh, Shakespeare was English and Mm. we have a very interesting relationship Mm. with Great Britain being Australians. Um, We think we're part of their country. Um, We think we're convicts from their country. We think whatever they say must be better. Um, And then we've kind of, in a weird way, adopted that to kind of go with America now in a weird way. Um, This bizarre kind of cultural cringe and and even now it still feels like this is apparent in the acting world where um the advice is get semi-famous in australia with some Mm -hmm. good indie films then go to la 
and make something massive and then you can come back to Australia like a Kate Blanchett, like a Hugh Jackman, and then you'll do the Australian work. Um, I, I remember being told that was the way to do it when I graduated from NIDA. Things have moved since then. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it, that we somehow have this automatic respect or we think we have an automatic respect for something that's American or something that's British before we trust our own voice. And I think what the youth are doing is going, they're questioning that. They're going mm. kind of, but, but like, but why? Why should, why should I have to perform the Shakespeare in the British accent? And, and the answer is, we actually don't want you to no. use your own voice. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, please use your own accent. Use your own voice. Simply speak with, with truth. So I don't know, maybe there's some cultural, cultural cringe in there as to why we think we have to kind of un-toff-toff Shakespeare. Um, there's the older films when we watch them, of course, have that different speech and different dialect. Um, and maybe we're just up against that. Maybe mm. it's less about cultural cringe. Maybe it's more about modernizing Shakespeare, less about what he used to be 40, 50 years ago um, in the 70s. And what is Shakespeare now? Mm. It's that moving on from new wave and 70s and the addition of the Australian accent, moving away from the RSC, starting to find that national voice. I, I don't know if it's only with Shakespeare or if we just seem to take the mickey out of anything, <laughs> anything yeah. we can get our hands on. After you as an individual or the players as an ensemble have been into a school and worked with the students, what do you hope happens next for those students in their journey with Shakespeare? We've talked about regional and city and metropolitan schools, um, but what do you hope happens next in both of those contexts? Um, I can answer this definitely personally whenever I come in personally, um, and I guess I can answer this as a director of the players' shows as well, but um, I think every person, every actor who's been a player um, or every teaching artist might have a different a different thing that they want to leave behind. Um, I guess this is to say Bell Shakespeare doesn't necessarily have an ethos of what we want to leave behind. But um, for me personally, I would love at least one student, maybe more, but at least one student to kind of go home that night and just read Daydream about it, to just rethink about that thing, to just... Um, replay one of the scenes in their head or um, have some lingering, long-lasting effect of whatever the workshop was or the play that they saw was. Um, it, it, it would be magic if suddenly everyone kind of turned around and for the rest of the drama you know, unit, um, they were still as passionate and talked about it more and more and more. I think it's probably naive to think that that might happen. Um, but if you begin... Um, to open up the daydream quality, whether it's about Shakespeare, whether it's about theatre or performing arts in general, um, I, th I think you've opened up the artist inside mm. of them. Um, and from that point, this, the seed is sown, the bug has bitten, um, and, and hopefully on go these students, at least one, maybe more, on go these students to have a richer experience of their life regardless of what they do because there's an understanding of the value of the arts in mm. there. Um, I, yeah, if, if, if it's a player's show, um, the metaphor I often kind of speak to the actors about or like to think about is they come in 
Um, their play is like the explosion of the New Year's fireworks. And hopefully the next time the student walks back into that gymnasium hall or the basketball courts, they can see the confetti. And they're like, oh yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome. Remember that moment when such and such and the joy or the bug or the, um, the reverence for some sort of art and maybe Shakespeare um, has been implanted. Mm, I think that's teaching, finding that yeah. curiosity and joy. You know, it, it's certainly why I work with young people because they seem to have more curiosity and joy. Um, they're not all the time. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, John Britton, who um, uh, is the, or was the, I'm not sure now, um, the director of Duende, which is a physical theatre ensemble, um, European-based, um, he often talks about learning happening at, um, the, the best time for learning is when we are in a state of play. Mm. So when we are um, challenged appropriately, you could also say in a state of flow, flow state theory. So we are challenged enough that it's interesting but it's not so easy that we then become bored. Mm -hmm. And if we're in a state of play, we feel safe to explore and we're not judged. So learning often happens in a state of play. So if the students can feel like, yes, that was play, then maybe we've kind of, we've slipped the learning in during the play. Yeah, and we want these things not to be standalone. You know, really? anytime we get a, an external artist, we don't want an hour to pass and then never visit it again. It's about that follow-up. What do you think teachers can do when you leave to make sure that that bug has bitten or that that curiosity continues? Um, well, in a really practical sense and specifically for the Bell Shakespeare Company, use the resource pack. With mm. every workshop, with every masterclass, there has been hours, Amy, hours of work that's gone into the resource kit. Let's look back at this. Let's dive into this, especially if it's just a two-hour standalone workshop or if it's just the show coming in on one day and not, nothing else after that. The resource kit touches all the things that maybe there wasn't time to look at in the workshop or in the masterclass um, or, or even in the Q&A after the performance. Um, so in a real practical way, read through the resource kit. Um, there'll be extra exercises. There'll be things that are, are pulled apart, um, learning emphasis. There's a really, you know, a, a great bunch of online resources there. Um, and then just simply from, uh, I guess, a... a enjoyment standpoint um, to refer back to um, as you're continuing on and teaching. Um, if, if you are looking at a play, remember that moment when such and such came in and they were wearing the hat or um, the fabulous uh, moment of kind of cartoon running around that happened on stage um, where there was no text for 20 seconds and they were just trying to slap each other on the head with the scripts. This was a small moment we choreographed in one of the shows last year. Um, <laughs> to refer back to the show or to refer back to, remember when Sally got up and she did the exercise with iambic pentameter, um, referring back to the workshop or masterclass is gonna keep it alive in some way. Um, but I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing that, that teachers can probably do is to, this is kind of going to sound a little bit kind of philosophical, possibly, um, it's a Lao Tzu quote where if you want to change the world, change yourself. And I think one of the biggest things teachers can do is allow the enthusiasm or the, the, the joy um, of Shakespeare to infect them. 
because if they discover or if they lose a bit of, if there is fear around teaching the subject matter, sometimes in English spheres, certainly there can be. Um, and if they allow a little bit of the passion to affect them, then that's going to carry through in whatever it is they set up to teach. Um, and yeah, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit philosophical, but if as a teacher, um, some of that uh, joy and reverence and love of the arts can either be reignited um, or, or grow a little deeper, that is inevitably going to help your students. So I, I would encourage teachers to continue to be students as well. <laughs> Lifelong learners, we often say. Always. Lifelong learners. We are as artists, so always. I wonder whether you recall when you were first struck or when the, the bug first bit for you, for Shakespeare, for theatre? Do you know, I, I, I heard you asking these questions as I listened to your podcast before I jumped on to do this episode, which is great, by the way. If you're listening now, go back, listen to the earlier ones. Um, it, for me, it was a slow burn. Um, mm. And I realised that it wasn't necessarily Shakespeare that I fell in love with, but it was theatre and acting um, and storytelling that I fell in love with. Um, we did a production in grade seven of A Midsummer Night's Dream and I got to play Peas Blossom, which is one of the named fairies. I had four lines in grade seven. This was amazing. <laughs> Obviously the seniors all had all the big speaking parts, but as a grade seven student, I had four lines. It was terribly exciting. Um, but the reason that I fell in love with Shakespeare was because I fell in love with performance and I had incredible drama teachers that infused me with the love of performance in general and then it just grew over time um, I remember one of the things that I did uh, in high school we as, as we started to do more and more Shakespeare in the senior year we were going to do Romeo and Juliet um, for various reasons unfortunately it got cancelled um, but as we were preparing for Romeo and Juliet I remember um, uh, listening to Eminem and then reading through Shakespeare's lines and like and the, the rhythm of Eminem's rap and poetry you could feel kind of the same thing happening in Shakespeare so then I began to rewrite Eminem's white America I could be one of your kids um, with like a rap about how Eminem and Shakespeare are similar um, just because I just loved the poetry of it I can't remember it and it's hidden in a, in a journal somewhere for me to get really embarrassed about later um, but it it, it was it was a slow burn to love Shakespeare, not, not a slow burn, but just Shakespeare grew out of my love for theatre and, and especially out of my love for rhythm and my love for the use of, of rhythm and pace and kind of the musicality in the words. Mm. So that's that was the beginning. And it still continues. You know, you're it still does. finding it the is. joy in it now. And it's love evident it. in what you do, you know, um, You've only got to be in the same room as you, Julia, to know how infectious that joy is with students. Yeah, it's lovely. That's awesome. Yeah, I do love it. I, I love his words. I love his ideas. Um, and I love just good storytellers. And Shakespeare is arguably one of the best storytellers. So, Agreed. Well, that sums up our episode really on teaching artists and Shakespeare. We will continue and um, upload a second episode about physical theatre and Shakespeare. You've started to talk about rhythm mm -hmm. there, Julia. So stay tuned <laughs> for that one. Um, for now, thank you, Julia Billington. Thank you, Amy Perry. It's so awesome to be on the podcast. You've been listening to Let Him Roar Again a podcast recorded by Amy Perry.
amid the tall blue gums of Darug country. Performance of Bottom's Lines from A Midsummer Night's Dream by the phenomenal Simon Ward. Let me play the lion too. I will 